uh, it was just that's just not how we're gonna roll this. I am psyched right now, and my world is a thousand times better. We're gonna do this differently. It's a roller coaster with me, David. Try to give up. You should be doing it. Welcome to another potentially useful episode of the T-Caps Loop Podcast. My name is Larry Burden, and he's a model of uncommon sense. It's the technologist, David Noller. And balancing the scales of law and cast for this pod, it's the ever-pragmatic Danielle Brostrom. Before we started the pod, you are commenting on the fact that you're up and down all the time and you don't know where you're coming from. So maybe pragmatic is not necessarily the correct adjective. No, that's, that's accurate. That's accurate? The ever-pragmatic. Let's go back to it. Danielle Brostrom. Before we, you know what? I did not uh, actually edit this. So we're just going to jump straight in to the TCAPS loop moment of Zen. Once a new technology rolls over you, if you're not part of the steamroller, you're part of the road. Stuart Brand. That's something, Larry. <laughs> that is. Wow. There was, there was a lot of quotes to choose from, and a lot of them were darker than that. I'd like to point out it. Can I just say though how accurate that can be in just such a simple uh, in such a simple example? When I went to college, I had my own computer. It was a Macintosh 512K enhanced. That's 512K of memory, and I was the only one in my building who knew how to type because I took a class in typing. I made pizza money by typing other people's papers. The technology was there, whether it was a typewriter or a computer or a word processor, but the people who hadn't decided to join that and learn how to use it efficiently ended up paying somebody who did know how to use it efficiently to get the work done for them. So I totally can relate to that. So David Noller is the steamroller. I I steamrolled. That's a James Taylor song, isn't it? There's a little bluesy tune from, from James Taylor. Okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, on this week's episode, we are going to discuss something from Common Sense Media, which is one of our favorite sites. We certainly uh, support it and encourage everybody to visit it. Um, they came up with a census or came out with a census of media use by tweens and teens for 2021, which is very timely considering the environment in which it was conducted. Um, we actually get a post, well, I don't know if they're, we're actually in post-pandemic, we can't really be in post-pandemic, but that actually takes into account media use and digital use usage during the pandemic. And I would say the findings were interesting. So I'm gonna turn it over to you guys. And uh, what did you, I guess, what were some of the key points that you guys saw when you looked at the census? Well, before we talk about key points, I wanna give a little bit of background. Um, Go ahead. So, Mark, we regularly follow common sense because they they do things like this. They do these um, longitudinal research studies and then present their findings. And they're always really interesting. This one in particular came out in March 2022 because that was officially two years since we all kind of shut down for the pandemic. And in those two years, we've seen how the pandemic has affected everything. So to actually dial down how it has affected kids' media use, this is what Common Sense Media did. So they were able to see that kids' media use grew faster since the start of the pandemic than it has 
over the four years prior to the pandemic. So it kind of compares eight to 18 year olds in 2019, just prior to the virus arriving in the US in fall 20 of 21, as most schools around the country had opened back up for in-person learning. So they looked at how much kids enjoy various media activities, such as watching TV, and that includes streaming services, playing video games, using social media, how often they engage in those activities and how much time they spend per day engaging in those activities. And then they also drilled into that because we know that just how much time they're spending on media is not the only thing to look at. You also need to look at what they're doing. So they talked about things like, are they creating, consuming, are they reading? What does that look like? And then that social media piece is a big part of what is kind of coming up for our kids. So I kind of wanted to go through and look at some of the big findings and then talk about them. So I think we should start with that first thing that they mention in the report. And that is that media use in tweens and teens has grown faster since the start of the pandemic than it has over the four years prior to the pandemic. So the media use in kids is definitely higher since we got out of this pandemic, well, since we went back to in-person learning, what does that mean for us? How does that change what we do in the classroom? David? <laughs> How does it change what we do in the classroom? Because of the pandemic, we ended up using more um, screen-based learning objects in the classroom. That We were kind of driven to do that when we couldn't be face-to-face. -face. We also know that the, the kids preferred tool, the one thing that they say they couldn't live without if it came down to it, is YouTube. And we know that a lot of the, of the things that kids do on YouTube is a matter of learning about something that they're interested in. Now, it might not necessarily be a school thing. Uh, my daughter is interested in watching videos about uh, fashion and about her favorite musicians. But she comes and she talks to me about those things. And she can relate information to me that she's learned from those videos. So one of the things that we might want to consider moving forward is I know like in our district, uh, our kids can access YouTube, but it reminds us that kids have their own, um, their own interests and their own motivation to learn things based on those interests. Uh, and I think one of the conclusions of this, of this study was that yes, media engagement has gone up, but that's not necessarily all bad because in a lot of the things that the kids uh, are doing, uh, Danielle mentioned earlier, some of it was creating new content. Uh, some of it was engaging in these you know, YouTube videos to learn new things. So I think we need to recognize that YouTube as a learning platform, maybe the wrong word for it, YouTube as a place to go get some learning can be effective and can meet the kids where they like to be. And it's a, it's a reminder for me that if I can meet the kids in a space that they already like to be in, I'm halfway there in terms of getting them to engage in the material. So let's talk about the stats on that one, David. So 79% of 13 to 18 year olds who are regular users of social media and online videos, they had to rank which sites they couldn't live without. And mm -hmm. definitely YouTube, 32%. Everything else, Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, Discord, they're all below the 20%. So we know YouTube is where it's at. 
This right. is where I think the policymakers need to step it up because what are we doing? We know kids are on there. What are we doing to protect our kids when they're on these sites? I'm intrigued by the different angles that you two are coming at at this, the, the, the same data. I think it's very telling. Sure. If, if, sure. If, if a listener doesn't, doesn't know already, and you should, um, Danielle's focus is elementary and David's focus is secondary. So their points of view are uh, on this data are going to be very, very specific. Like for instance, I hear from David that the, the data regarding YouTube, YouTube and, and uh, screen time overall is showing that our students are preferring or are looking at their screens as the preferred tool for learning and that YouTube is the preferred site for learning and it increases their voice and choice which we talk about all the time it is yeah. <laughs> it is amazing at that if harnessed appropriately which is where we come in to danielle's point of view which is are we setting it up to be as useful a tool and safe a tool as it could be for our learners right and i appreciate that uh that question of how do we do it safely in terms of protecting, and it's from pre-K all the way through high school, uh, we should be setting those things up in the way that that they're done in a safe, in a safe way, and in a safe place. One of the things that that we can do with things like YouTube, and I don't know so much about Snapchat or TikTok or Instagram; those things aren't really those can't come through our our school filter on their own. But the kids do have their own devices. So one of the things we can do is use tools like Edpuzzle, which take out the suggested videos and the commentary that comes along where some of that stuff that might be distracting, distracting or negative or uh, inappropriate, et cetera, uh, where some of that stuff lives, uh, we can avoid that in that way. But that's also getting back to things that we are providing the students rather than them being able to choose and find things on their own. So how do we make that useful for students who are, you know, using that tool on their own? That's a great question. And also prepare them for being um, responsible learners, lifelong learners, because these are the tools that they're going to be using when they're outside of our care. I think it would it would behoove us to recognize that it is also our responsibility to show them how to navigate this and show them what it will look like when they don't have our filter because they will not have our the the right. school's filter all the time. So one of the things that I I wish Steffi would have been here to to chat about with us um, reading reading on devices that didn't go up. No, if you. There was a stat that they said, and this uh, makes me so sad, but one in 10 teens, one in 10 tweens, and nearly one in five teens say they never read anything other than what's required for school or right. homework on their device. And the, I had some questions about that one, too, because it, there was a question about how often students read for pleasure. And between once a day and once a, a week, it was around 48%. And then there was another piece of data that said that 10% of students uh, use a device as an e-reader in some way. 
And I didn't know whether that 10% was included in that other number, the 48% who read once a week or once a day, or if that was like an additional number, if that was a separate uh, measurement. But 10%, frankly, 10% of people who using are, are using a device to read, I would have guessed that that was high anyway. I don't know. A, I mean, I don't, I use an e-reader. That's what it's designed for. It doesn't have access to the internet. It Well, it does, but only to buy books. But I can't get to a web browser. Uh, there's no games on it. There's nothing like that. I guess I was surprised that even there were 10% of kids who are using devices to read. That just seemed high to me. Though that might be their phone, and that's also what do you define? What is the definition of reading? Is it reading a book? Is it reading a comic? Is it reading just information or a website, you know, to look for something that interests them. So it might not be just a book or book reading. Right. I specifically I've, asked them to specify whether they read books or material in shorter formats, such as articles in print or online and which digital devices, and then how much they enjoy reading this beautiful picture of, you know, the pandemic forcing us to reevaluate what is important and what is important is sitting down with a good book and just enriching your soul. That didn't happen. I kind of didn't expect that to happen. I wanted it to. I mean, sure. (laughs) Um, Are you the steamroller or are you the road? What's interesting though (laughs) is that even though that's true, that reading didn't go up uh, and, you know, we have the numbers there. Neither did playing video games. That which surprised was one me. Of, yeah, which was one of the big surprises of this, that it it wasn't a matter of, well, I have more time to play games now. Social media went, went up, we know that. But things like, and watching TV went up, I think, if I remember right. Uh, but like video gaming did not. Now, frankly, I'm not against video games because a lot of them actually engage a lot of reading and storytelling there's a new uh, Borderlands game out and you need to listen to the story and you need to follow the thread of the plot in order to learn what to do next. And I'm not opposed to, to those kinds of games as part of our literacy journey, if I can call it that. The ones that, that engage students with reading or that ask them to follow a plot, it's not the same as reading, granted. But it it does uh, inform a type of literacy that engages with them in an an audible format where they're part of that story, too. So, well, and we've talked about this again, David, it's video games are interactive. As we grew up, we were watching TV. That's one way traffic, at least in a video game. If that's the screen time you're you're if you're replacing your television watching with a video game, I'd prefer the video game. Because at least there's a back and forth. There's a conversation being had as yeah. opposed to, again, it just being one-way traffic. I think one of the things that we're seeing in the study is that these these things aren't being replaced. It's all additive. Mm-hmm. Even though we do have to recognize that, again, going back to the, the concept of the digital device is our our kid's tool of choice. So we have to understand that it is a tool first. So they're oftentimes not going to be reading a book. They're oftentimes not going to be engaging in the positive aspects of, of culture through almost anything else but their 
computer. So I think, I don't know if in the study they kind of talked about that, because I think that is a something that we have to keep in mind, it, That is that it's not all dark and evil. All those numbers are don't represent bad habits. Right. But how do we know and where is that line? And what I guess my, my question to you guys is what are you seeing in relation to the numbers, not just the numbers that are on the census, but what are you seeing in your own own kids, own lives, own students? So one of the things that I found encouraging from the report that I'm also seeing in students that I encounter on um, the podcast piece, we've got about half of our teens that are listening to podcasts. One in five say they're doing it at least once a week. There are some amazing podcasts, and it is a great way for kids to learn or even just be entertained. And I think that there was a time where we would have dismissed that. And I'm, I think it's pretty cool. I'm starting to see that being used in the classroom more. I was just going to bring that up. Uh, I saw the same figure that 20% of our students that listen to it uh, regularly and they'll tell you about it and they'll tell you what they like about it and they'll tell you what they learn from it. And they're excited about some of these things. There's some of the ones they listen to are kind of for shock value. There's several podcasts out there about crime um, that they might enjoy, but there, I have kids that are talking to me about the sports podcast that they listen to, or I have a, a friend of my, my daughter's who's into music theory. And there's a podcast called strong songs that I recommended to him where it's a, it's a musician who is a music educator and he tears apart, breaks apart what makes pop songs successful or what the musicians did in the recording or how the chord structure moves from this place to that place. And he's now listening to that podcast and learning more about music production, about music theory. And it's really neat to see because it's such a available thing. You don't have to go to the library to check out the book. I still think you should go to a library and check out a book. You can turn on your phone and look at a podcast, open up a podcast and listen to it for two, three minutes. If you're not entertained, you move to another one. But when kids find the one that connects with them, they become regular consumers of it. I think that's true for everybody who listens to podcasts. I have my favorites and I listen to them almost daily. And David, did you see that the children in lower income households are the most likely to enjoy listening to the podcast? Like that's a good I, way to reach those kids. That's awesome. I think that's interesting. I don't know if you, you have experienced this um, when listening to a podcast. You start to develop a weird relationship with the podcast host. When you, when you listen to a podcast long enough, you, you definitely start to develop a relationship. You almost wonder if there is some aspect of that with some of those lower income students that maybe have a little more time um, alone because their parents may, you know, may be working extra shifts, extra hours, and they, they find some solace in a voice. Yeah, I could see that. With one of the podcasts I've been listening to, I've been listening to it since it was a radio show, and I'm probably somewhere between the, it's been 15 years or more that I've been listening to this group. And the last few exclusively as a podcast. And it's like they're my afternoon friends. And when I laugh along with their humor, I kind of feel like we're all hanging out together in the same room. I mean, it doesn't feel like I'm sitting in an audience listening to a performer. It's more of a shared experience because it's so conversational. 
And I think maybe that gets to the heart of why it feels like that. One of the things I found surprising in the the statistics about those lower income kids is that they spend, I think it's two hours more on average on screen devices than upper income kids. And my initial thought was, what does that have to do with their access to technology? And it turns out they have much less access to technology. But when they do have it, they use it more. And I got to thinking about why that's true. Is it because they have less access to after-school activities? Or they don't have somebody at home, like you mentioned, Larry, if they're in a two, a situation where they don't have anybody at home waiting for them after school to <laughs> give them direction of something else to do. Or if they're not involved in clubs after school or et cetera. They don't have, like in our, in our area, uh, our school district is so large that at our high school, if you don't have a car, you have to ride the bus home because there's no other way to to get transportation because, you know, from here to my house is 15 minutes and I'm not even near the farthest of one who lives, you know, away from the school. So they get home earlier and then maybe have more time before bedtime to engage in this stuff where maybe some of the kids that have more resources have access to do other things than jump on the screen the computer, the smartphone, the tablet. That's part of a, maybe another survey that I'd like to see happen. You could call that segment of the population vulnerable. I think that's fair. I think we would be remiss too if we didn't talk about the digital divide. I mean, that's still a thing. We still, I don't think we personally see it as much because we do have our one-to-one -one program and the kids can take their devices home and we check out hotspots to families to help those who don't have internet or maybe live in a place that they can't get high-speed internet, which is still a thing. But looking at some of these stats that 67% of our lower-income kids as a whole just don't have a laptop or a desktop computer in the home, that can be tough. I know even if you have a smartphone trying to do your homework and everything on a small device like that, if it just feels like having a device and having internet, reliable, high-speed internet access, it should be something that everyone should have. I don't know how to make that happen, but it's kind of a thing. Just to note that the, it's 67% that do, but that's compared to 94% of the you. higher income. Thank you. So it's, yeah, it's still bad. And even with that 60%, so, for instance, we have a one-to-one -one program. A lot of those students that are in more affluent families or households have other computers that they're oftentimes using, faster computers, larger screen space. I mean, we know as in our professional environment how important screen space is. It just, it, it just, it's much more efficient. You're able to get a lot more done simply because you have more screen space. More than likely, those students in lower incomes are dealing with devices that are just less efficient to do work on. So sure. it's not even that they, even if they have a device, the device probably is not as well suited to doing the work that we're asking them to do because the work that we're asking to do, asking them to do on the devices is CPU and screen intensive. And you know what is better suited to those smaller screens and lower CPUs? 
your social media sites <laughs> because the the design is is made for quick consumption on lower quality devices. I think That's it's very important to consider the uh, lack of uh, techno technological equity when we consider whether or not we're sending Homer home. Even for the kids that have the tech, though, if you don't have parent support there, like for the kids that don't understand it, they're just floundering. Going back to what we're discussing, which is the census, it's taking an element of potential inequity off the table. I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And it's in, in many ways, it's simplifying the, the divide between when it's time to do your learning and when it's your time. Right now, there's a, a crazy blur. And I think, honestly, I think adults feel that as well. When, when are you yeah. supposed to be working and when are you not supposed to be working? We talk all the time about work-life balance. Somehow we don't maybe talk enough about students' educational life balance. I have students at the secondary level that they're, they're taking a full load of classes. I have a student right now who is in two sports, which are both good for him. Physical, you know, training, et cetera. Yep. And he has a ton of homework every night. And he's just sort of getting by and managing it until he doesn't have to anymore. There's just not a whole lot of wiggle room. Well, let's look at your student as an example. What's going to suffer for that kid? It's not going to be the homework. It's going to be sleep. It's yep. going to be dinner with family. Yep. It's going to be exercise. I mean, that's what suffers for all of us when we, yeah. when that line blurs, or maybe just for me, I don't know. And mostly it's, it's sleep. Yeah. We see kids in our classrooms all the time that are very busy and they're very motivated and they have ambition, but they just can't do it all. And, and I wish they didn't have to. And, you know, we talk about things that we can do to set up our, our children for success, teaching regulation. Mm -hmm. It seems to be something that we just decided that isn't, that's yeah. not valuable skill to have moderation and, yeah. <laughs> and regulation. Eh, we, don't worry about that. And then we, you know, we wonder why the social emotional health of our students is, to, right. is, is where it's at. We had a, a, a break because of state testing, um, the SAT in between when we had completed our rough draft of our project and when we were going to have to start working on rev revisions and their quote homework for that time was to not work on it don't go home after you take the sat and think that you have to pour an hour into this project there's time your assignment is to go home and take a nap <laughs> i think it's relevant that we're talking about the census and i think that's very easy for us to point fingers at screens and digital lives and maybe we need to turn around and take a little bit closer look at the environment that we're creating before we actually start pointing fingers at a device hmm. all right then and there we go anything else to add nothing else here it's been a hard couple of years i think we uh we have a responsibility to make the spotter for our kids. Yeah. And I do think focusing on things like creating things is something that the more we see in the data that, that the kids are doing that, 
I think we can maybe give ourselves permission to let ourselves not be the expert about it and let the kids who know how to do it, just do it. Allow them to be producers, not just consumers. Yeah. All right. Hey, does anybody have a tech tool of the week? I have a tech tool of the week. Um, my tech tool of the week is teachdigsit.com. Teach teachdigsit.com is the brainchild of Dr. Kristen Matson, who we know is one of my favorite people, and Dr. Leanne Lindsay. And what I love about this site is they offer a framework that is 100% free to schools. And it talks about a lot of the things that we are struggling with. It puts things into four strands, digital safety, media and information literacy, digital well-being, and social responsibility. It is a really, really nice framework for starting to have some of these discussions with our students and um, probably with our administrators as well. So um, teachdigsit.com. And then they also offer some great training and PD options that are really affordable and really well done. I mean, if you've ever seen Kristen Matson present, she was a, a keynote at Wired a couple of years ago. She is amazing. So, you know, it's going to be good. Perfect tech tool for our conversation. Thank you, well Larry. Played. Well Thanks. played. All right. In closing, uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TCAPS Loop. At Burlstrom DA. At Technologist. Rate and review this and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, TuneIn, Pocket Cast, Downcast, Overcast, or wherever else you get your ear candy. Thanks for listening and inspiring. Pretty down. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, boy. <laughs>